I have a dream that all men are created equal. G'day everyone, welcome back to Your Story. I'm your host Ian Kath and this is episode 15. Just before we get into the show, yourstorypodcast.com. That's where you can get the links to iTunes and Blueberry and all the other podcast podcast directories that are out there. You can also get the email which is chat at yourstorypodcast.com. Make a comment there if you'd like, all that sort of stuff. Iota Promonet is where I get the music from. Go to Iota if you want to and check out more music. They've got stacks of stuff over there, absolutely stacks of it. And a lot of it's very good and a lot of it you can get, you know, a couple of... Uh, tracks of music basically for nothing just like I do have a good listen to it and if you'd like it you can then maybe consider buying it it's all really good stuff I've mentioned previously that in April early May I'm going to Melbourne and I'm going to be taking the podcast down there I'm after some people and if you happen to know anybody in the Melbourne area who's you know the sort of person that you think that I should get hold of and maybe put them on the show I'd love you to let me know who they are I'm after all sorts of interesting people. I don't care what they're into. I make no judgments about what they do. All I want is people who are interesting. And I want to be able to share their story with the greater community. So if you know anybody, please let me know, and I'd love to track them down if I can. Also, that's leading up to a big trip that I've got in uh, July and August, where I'm going to be going over to Europe. Initially, I'm planning on landing in Berlin, hanging around Berlin for a while and then heading south, eventually ending up in London. So if you happen to know anybody in Europe who you think might be interesting and worthwhile for me to catch up with, I'd love you to also let me know. I will find people. I know that all I have to do is put my ear to the ground when I get over to these places. But if you happen to know anybody who's just extraordinary and I should find out about, please send me an email. I'd love to find out about them. The weather's just turned here. It's just got a little bit cooler. We're into April now, aren't we? And it's cooled down. Brisbane's in the subtropics, so we tend to have a very long summer and, frankly, often a very hot summer. And it's just got a little bit cool. And it sort of caught me a little bit unawares. And it got me thinking about food and reflecting on today's show. Because have you ever noticed that as winter comes on, you start to eat slightly heavier foods? You know, the soups, the stews the potatoes, the heavier foods, compared with in summer when you eat the watermelon, the salads, the sushi, and the lighter foods, you know, you might have, sure, a barbecue, but you didn't have salads with it and things like that. Well, that feel that we all have for the different types of food at the different times of year, and also, frankly, the different types of food that we have at different times in our life, is the basic principle of what macrobiotics is about. Now, a lot of people you know, turn their head up when they hear the word macrobiotics because they think brown rice and cabbage. And that's not the truth. Macrobiotics is really just simply a philosophy whereby you do things in your life relevant to the, that time of your life. Whether you be a child or a, 
an elderly person, whether you be pregnant or whether you be an athlete, you do different things, not just food, but all sorts of different things. And that is the macrobiotic philosophy. But we often hear about the food side of things. Well, a few years ago, when I sort of started to bounce around the edges of this and learn a few of the basic principles of it, I got a cookbook called Nourish, written by Holly Davis. And Nourish introduced me to some extraordinarily wonderful recipes, all basically preparing food in the macrobiotic style. And I discovered exactly how rich and deep this philosophy was. And the food is just sublime. And this episode is all about catching up with Holly, because when I was in Sydney... I had a chance to meet her, and we, we sat down for a good long while and talked about all things food and how she got into food and, and all these things about how it all fits together. I hope you enjoy the episode. I enjoyed it, and I've enjoyed listening back to it while putting this together. This is Holly's Story. Today's what's today? Uh, today is the oh, it's the twelfth. It's the twelfth, is it? Yeah, that's right. Last name in Sydney. Today's the twelfth of uh, February, and, and I'm currently in Palm Beach, overlooking the Pacific Ocean with the sea breeze, sipping a lovely cup of tea with Holly Davis. Thanks for coming on the show, Holly. Pleasure. And uh, we're going to talk about your life, and you're going to tell us all about what you're up to. Now, I know you somewhat because of your fame. And Holly published a little book. It's actually not too small. A little, a little book. How long ago? When did you publish it? What year? 99. Okay. I got my copy from my sister in 2002, early 2002. And I had a dinner party based out of that cookbook. Oh, did you? That made people swoon. You know, it was just awesome. And I've since found out that I've got all these friends who also have Nourish. And... Um, when my sister said to me, when I asked her, I was coming to Sydney, and I said, hey, Susan, do you know anybody who might be up for this? She said, hey, I've got uh, Holly Davis's. Are you right? What? So I bounced an email off to you, and I said, uh, here's an idea out of the blue. And uh, you sent an email back to me saying, you're right. What's it that? was out of the blue. <laughs> <laughs> and what's a podcast? So we've, uh, we've spent a, the last 10 or 15 minutes just getting to know each other a little bit, and how are you so far, I'm feeling damn delightful. So Excellent. let's see where this goes, eh, Holly? <laughs> so it's, I suppose, a really easy question, which I like to ask sometimes if I don't know where to go, and I don't at this point in time. What's your story? I know you're a foodie. Maybe we should start with that, should we? Well, that'll come into it one way or another. That's right. Yeah, and you're all, a hardcore. All, all roads lead to food. Um, what's your story is a good, it's a good question, and... and and it, this is a great idea, you know, because everybody has a story and, and many. You know, I've been saying, and I, and I wrote it in the book, you know, that I was born in time for breakfast. I kind of view that I was, that I'm an incredibly fortunate in that um, I meet many people who don't know what they want to do with their lives and don't really know what their lives are for or haven't quite worked that out or spend years and years working that out. I've never, I've never had that. Although, although I didn't always know that I was, you know, that I was going to work in food. I've always had an interest in food, and from a very early age. When did you start cooking? Um, well, I started cooking with mum. 
I became the family's meringue maker. Okay, what age? Uh, I think I was probably about 10 or 11. My mum had a Kenwood chef. Yep. And uh, like my lots of mums, she taught me how to make meringues. And I just, you know, when that, all that fluffy whiteness mm. and ice and sugar. It was just fantastic. I think it was cast sugar. Yeah. And, um, so, and I got really good at it. And then she taught me how to make, a bit later on, she taught me how to make a really good omelette. I mean, so, the thing is, meringues, you know, there are lots of things that aren't that easy to do, but if you've got somebody who loves you, who's willing to let you make mistakes and, you know, and then re-show you and show you, you, you just pick it up. Or right. you, if you've got a and what, feeling. And is that what your mum was like? Yeah, she's great. Is she still around? Yeah. Yeah, she's going to be 80 in next January. Um, yeah. So, so they are um, making stuff at home. Where did that lead? Did you uh, did you do all those cooking stuff at school, and did you embrace it? Did you go on to mm, formal training? As I a did cook? do I did do cooking at school. That uh, I think it was only a term or something where I was doing home economics. I think mm, it's called. Mm, remember it well. And the thing that I that really <laughs> you know those kind of funny things that the thing that really got me about that was the woman who was our teacher, whose name I forget. Wore um, she wore a wedding ring or a couple of rings, and when she would sift flour, she'd tap the sieve, and it would just make this fantastic noise. And I can remember in the class thinking, "I'm going to do that one day. I'm, you know, I'm going to I'm going to have a wedding ring. Gonna have, that you're gonna not necessarily a wedding ring, but I, but I'm going to do that. You know, I'm going to have rings. And I'm going to tap on tap the sieve. Flour. Yeah, I, no, I, I didn't become a baker, but. Yeah, funny, isn't it? But that, that stayed with me is something that... And I still think about it sometimes. If I am sifting flour, I think of... Uh, it was something in that kind of rhythmic motion mm. of tapping the sieve. These are the little um, memory links that take us back to when we were that age. You know, yeah. Music, smell. Yeah. You know. The taste. Taste, sure. Yeah. yeah. So... Uh, yeah, I can remember... Uh, meals I've eaten, you know, long after, I might forget who's there, but I can remember what we ate. So if I was to ask you who are the people that you would invite to that dinner party, it's probably more what are the ingredients and dishes that you would invite to that dinner party. Or maybe people, you know, I'd invite people to a, you know, a particularly fabulous dinner party. I'd invite people I know appreciate food in a similar way. Mm. The guy that I started um, Iku with. Uh, now, now, Iku is a restaurant that we want to talk about a little bit later. But yeah. I just want to mention that it is this restaurant yes. that you, yeah. you started. It was a kind of macrobiotic takeaway eat-in food. Yeah. And I started it with a really beautiful man called Willem. And his partner, Nicholas, used to refuse to go out to dinner with us because he couldn't bear the way we pull absolutely like we'd go to really beautiful restaurants and then we'd eat and then we'd say mm, that was really nice but I mm, should have had a bit more what do you think oh I'm mm. not sure we should have had this and mm. he'd just say oh look I'm leaving mm. like you guys yeah I, I get that I, um, <laughs> I get, when yeah, I go with my sister she's a bit like that you know she goes mm, you know look, just baby you're just a little bit less balsamic in that dressing I think it would have been perfect and I'm going ah, it's good it's really good yeah <laughs> I'm just enjoying it the way it is <laughs> Oh, we enjoyed it too, but we liked it, you know, and then you can use those things to create something else. But the reality is, yes, you can. And the reality is anybody who has these strong disciplines in any path in life are going to be fairly 
critical in their observation of other people's work, furniture makers, filmmakers, yeah, yeah. it doesn't matter. So, okay, here you're cruising through your teen years. My mother had a um, catering company, and so I worked with her you, just as a kitchen hand, yeah. pretty much, and she'd give me jobs to do. When Is I'd that go. here in Sydney? No. Oh, no, I grew up in London. Ah. Oh, I would never have picked you as a Brit. Wouldn't you? No. I, um, I left England when I was 23 and went travelling. Yeah. Spent a year in America. Okay. And then a, uh, nine months in Japan, and then I came here. Okay. Now, the American Japan thing flags me too. Is that where you start discovering macro, is it? No, actually, I, I got interested in macrobiotics when I was 14. Oh, wow. Really, really young. I, I got introduced that by... Would have been barely out of My the... book is dedicated to, to two women called Tracy and Pip Son, and it was um, Pip who... In fact, there's a photograph of Pip over there. I just visited her in England last year. Uh, I went over to her place at some point with a cold, and she said, "Oh, I'll make you a tea that'll, mm-hmm. you know, help your cold." And, and she told me a bit about it. She made me an umeboshi kuzu tea. Okay. okay. And uh, it helped. And you know, sometimes uh, you hear something or you have an experience, and you just go, "Oh, yes, that's me." You know, that one. I want to know more of that. Yeah. Uh, this is it. Yeah. And uh, what it was, but there was just something I just went, made so much sense. It's like, that's that's what I want. But I was 14 and went home. So so I'd go to Pip's place and she'd tell me, she introduced me to ingredients and pickles and miso and umeboshi. And, yeah. and I'd buy some and take it home to mum's and I'd put these things in the fridge. And taquan pickles are... Um, uh, you know that long white radish daikon, yes, daikon. pickled uh, in with rice bran, right. and they're left they're buried in in rice bran for quite some time, and they become very smelly. They and, smell really, they, they smell rank. They're right. fermented with salt. Uh, with salt, yeah. they're delicious, but mm. they but they smell really really strong. So sort of like that sort of. Um, it's the radish version of what the Swedes and Norwegians do to fish. That whole pickling, uh, yeah, prob- of, probably of, of, fermenting, yeah, natural fermentation, yes. which is you know incredibly beneficial. Mm. And I now teach; I'm still mad for that. But um, so I put those in the fridge at home at, my, at mum's and miso and various other things, and she'd tolerate it for a while, and then she'd say, "I'm terribly sorry, but I'm throwing that away because it just couldn't stand the smell any longer." Yeah. So it went like that for a number of years. So it was loose, you know, and I introduced the family to brown rice and pole but I didn't know a great deal about it mm. really so it was a bit loose and then when I was 17 um, my parents left London and stayed as a lodger in somebody else's house and then I moved, went to art school I went travelling for a while and then I went to art school and I had my own place and at that point I was in charge of what I was eating fully so I went more what I would call macro neurotic. Sure. So I had books, and I basically learnt at that point learnt what I knew from reading. And okay, now for the sake of the let's define macrobiotics because it's important that we nail this one. Because, yeah. And I'm cu- really curious to see your definition of it. So, what era are we talking about? This your major learning growth phase. We're talking early mid seventies. Seventeen. I was born in fifty-eight. When was I seventeen? About seventy-six. Okay, so 70, yeah, 75. 75. Yeah. 
So macro, now a little bit I know about macro is it's a Japanese tradition that was popularized in the US by, is it Kushi? Michio Kushi is, is, is one Institute. exponent. And Georgia Sawa is the one... Georgia Sawa took it from Japan to the US. Yeah, but he didn't really take anything from there. He developed an idea. He was sick. He developed an idea. So this is what I... When I had the restaurant, people used to say Mm. often, you know, well, what is macro? So I developed this very... This is a very concise kind of idea of what it is. Um, It's a philosophy. So macrobiotics is actually a philosophy for understanding the energetic property of food and what's appropriate in different circumstances. Very simple. <laughs> okay, you want to flush that out? Yeah, so... Um, I know where, where you're coming from. This right? sort of the grossest examples of that would be that um, if you're a traditional Inuit, yep. Eskimo, you, then, then the sort of diet that you would have had would have been very, very little uh, vegetable matter, if any, large amounts of fat, animal fat, mm. and large amounts of animal food and seafood. And fermented, you know, as we were talking before, quite a bit of fermented food, so fermented fish. And that's an appropriate diet for the conditions that an Inuit lives under. An ice environment. In an ice, completely ice environment, that is that is a life-sustaining diet that supports... That, would, that diet here in Sydney would kill us. Um, Given enough time, you know. Well, I'm not sure that it would kill you, but you wouldn't be feeling great. No, no. You know, so, so for the sake of the listeners, yeah. why does it work for the Inuits? And why doesn't it work for us here in Sydney? Well, very, very simply, yeah. if you eat in accordance with the, um, with the conditions that you find yourself in, so if you're in an ice environment, then you eat food that's going to sustain, you, you need to heat your body up quickly you need you need to maintain your body heat and at a high level to to sustain life if you're on the you know the other extreme if you're living on a tropical island then what's appropriate in in that set of circumstances and and obviously it depends the the level of work that you do and the age that you are and the the condition of your health they all you modify your diet according to all of those things but if you're um, if you're on a tropical island, and you'd be more likely to have uh, the things that grow on tropical islands, so tropical fruits, the roots of more vegetable matter, much less animal food, some fish, but um, co- you know, coconuts, those sort of things. That's appropriate under those circumstances, and the lifestyle is likely to be more relaxed because when you have a diet that's more vegetable and fruit based the amount of heat and energy that you're generating and your desire to run and leap and jump is it's less like so so on a hot really hot summer's day lying on the beach eating watermelons kind of a good idea Mm. so they're the two extremes that humankind find themselves in can you maybe explain how that would operate in a year for the average Western person listening to a podcast in anywhere from Boston to South <laughs> Africa? If you just take into consideration... I mean, I think the thing... Uh, the, 
there's an enormous, there's, an, uh, there's a lot behind. Like I think somebody listening to a podcast in wherever they might be, wherever you are, um, there's, there's a, a great deal behind the, the philosophy. And we're looking at, we're looking at it from the food perspective. But it, what most people know of macrobiotics is, is that it's a diet. That's how people relate to it, is it, it's a diet. It's actually not a diet. It's a, it's a whole, it's looking at what is known as the order of the universe. So the order of the universe, that there are some principles that, that, um, that apply in that it's not, nothing is static and everything eventually changes to its opposite as night turns to day and hot to cold and yeah. you know, dry to wet and all those sort of things. If you want to know what's, a, what's appropriate, you have to take into consideration a whole lot of different things. There are many, many different parameters that you're going to consider to decide what's appropriate for you. And rather than say, well, if you live here, you do this, and if you live there, you do that, my, you know, my sort of view is you do what's right for you and you find your way with that. So I sort of go back a bit. What happens is... People get interested in macrobiotics and they, they, uh, they become very zealous and they treat it like it's a particular diet and fairly restrictive. So people will tell you that, that people who are macrobiotic don't eat meat or that they don't eat sugar or they don't eat, you know, like but there's a lot of what they don't. They, they only do this and they only do that. And, and uh, my view and, my, and, you know, my desire and partly why I wrote the book that I wrote is that I, w I wanted to kind of expand that and have people recognise that um, the word macrobiotic means big life. So macro, big, big. bios, life. Um, and everything has a place, and that's the order of the universe. Everything has got a place, and it's knowing something's place and, and what's appropriate is the word that comes up frequently, you know, mm. what's under different circumstances. So how does a person know what is appropriate and in its place in any particular moment in their life? Let's say you're elderly and your teeth are not in such great shape as they once were. What's appropriate for you will be determined by what you can chew well. So if you've got no teeth as, as little child or you or as an old person yeah. then what you're able to eat and chew well changes and so you would eat more uh more softly cooked longer cooked meals in the process of of cooking things you make things easier for your body to to digest right. like it's not simplistic no well see, people, but, people but it's using rules. people want rules but it's and using it's using your um your innate knowledge too. You know, I think most people who would go to a kitchen and who would put a meal together would consider, they will take into consideration a range of, if they're not making it straight out of a packet, mm. if you're actually making food, mm. you generally, you'll consider the textures in a meal, the colours in a meal. So what is that consideration flavors. based on? Do you think people already don't realise they're doing? How do they consider a soup? Versus a salad, because people do it, don't they? I, I, re I really feel like 
I feel like a tin of baked beans. I'm dying for a steak. You know, what, what are they tapping into there, Holly? Oh, before. Okay. Well, I let's stay oh, purely on uh, the macro path. No, 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 no. no. Oh, I mean, see, that's as much, like to me, that's as much on the macro path as anything else. If you feel like a steak or you feel, that's just, that's what you feel like in, in the moment. And it's not bad or wrong to, I don't think, to, to go that way. The thing is, everything's got a place. It's, it's working out, is this what's appropriate for me right, right now? And most of us don't stop very long to consider, is this appropriate for me now, right is that, now? Is that the secret to it? Taking time to check in, basically? I think so. To, to, um, and what I was saying before is if people put together a meal, they'll consider a whole range of things for creating a, a meal in terms of the colours that they put together, the flavours they put together, the textures they put together. And if you take those things into consideration, you're likely to end up with a reasonably balanced meal. Right. One of my big kind of passions is putting foods together that are culturally related to one another. So, and if you follow that, it's fairly difficult to go wrong. I think. Mm. You know, if you if you well, they have a long history of getting it right, don't they? Whatever culture you pick, if you pick things that are culturally specific to that, to, to that. So, if you're making an Italian meal. And you go with the, the, the types of things that occur in an Italian meal, you'll end up probably with something that's mm. quite nutritious and and, and I think delicious, that's where hopefully. The, some of the great chefs who can make an Italian meal and actually decide to throw a bit of sashimi in there somehow. If they can pull it off, I can't imagine how you'd pull that one off myself. But look, it does that. It but happens a lot. You see some of these guys popular. who do some of this morphing yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah. and I think sometimes they get it very well. When right. you look at... Tetsuya, who, who does it, you know, of that. yeah. I was thinking of that. I mean, he, he does it for Japanese and then with the French influence, yeah. and it works for you. Yeah. Who was that? Te- Wakuda Tetsuya. Yes, yeah, it's a very famous restaurant here in Sydney. Oh, it's a very famous, yes, because you might be yeah. in South Africa. <laughs> yeah, that's right, and um, it's normally booked months in advance. Months in advance, and it's it's art on a plate, mm. uh, and, it, and it's delicious. You know, like, it's not... I've never been there myself. Uh, I, when I actually when I published the book, I took the um, designer right. of the book there. We went and celebrated its publication by going to Tetsuya's. Why did you publish the book? Because the book, frankly, is what made you famous in a huge way. So don't relate to myself as being famous. I, well, amongst the foodies out there, like I've told, um, I've got three close people in my life, and I've told them about coming to see you, and they've all gone. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and so why did, what was your motivation for doing? Well, I'd had uh, the business Iku for 13 years and, uh, and I'd been telling, customers had been asking me from about year two, will you write a book? Are you going to write a book? When are you going to write a book? Are you going to write a book? I'll buy your book. We need I'll a book. I'll buy a book. Yeah. We need a book. Are you going to please put this in the book? Will you put this in? Oh, is this going to be in the book? Oh, oh please. And that went on and on and on. And I kept saying, yeah, I, I'm, I'd love to write a book. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, I am going to write a book. And then I started saying, yes, yes I'm, I'm ne- I think next year. I'll be, I'll be writing that book next year. And that went on for 13 years. And I sold the business to my business partner at that time. And, um, and part of the motivation was to get that book written because I'd been promising it for so long and it was, it was, I just had this kind of real, it was like a need to deliver what I had said that I would deliver. Yeah. 
And the really, a really fascinating thing about doing it was that I, it took me a couple of years to write it. I, we were really fortunate that we got quite a lot of say about what the book ended up looking like. And, and, and it's a beautiful book. It is a beautiful, it is a, isn't it? it, it's is, a beautiful, it is and it's just, still kind of, it's still a beautiful, like it's, it hasn't what, many, it's nine years old and it yeah. still looks. Yeah, it looks well, good. looking them over there in the stack, you, they could be published a month ago. Yeah, it's it's still isn't it? Yeah, no, you, you definitely nailed it. But it's, that, it's got that strong Eastern feel about it. It doesn't seem to age. Mm. I, think, I think it's a stunning book. Thanks. Yeah. I do too. Well, that's why I'm here. <laughs> I like it too. And it, it's a, but the but really surprising thing to me was that it got published um, maybe, I don't know, you know, six months, ten months, a year later, I'm not sure when. Somebody said to me, oh, I'm using your book and I really love the recipe for, you know, chickpea casserole. And, uh, oh, that's, wow, you, you're cooking out of it. And it was like this... Sort of dawned on me that because for me it was I've got to get this book published, but I didn't really consider. And I might sound a bit stupid, but I didn't really consider that people were going to use it um, and say things like you said, like yeah. you know, I did a dinner party and. When I get a comment about this podcast back to me, I go, "What do you mean somebody's actually listening?" <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I was doing this for myself. Isn't that funny, it's really yeah. quite strange. It, yeah. I think it's part of the creative process. Is that? But, at, you know, uh, I see food as my art form. Yeah. And writing, I, you know, I really love to, to write as well. And um, But there's something amazing. Like, I write for a magazine, and when people read those articles and they email me about them, I just think, isn't that great? Mm, yeah, let's mention the name. It's Notebook, isn't it? Notebook, yeah. Yeah, Notebook yeah. magazine here in Australia, mm. just in case yeah. anybody wants to check it out. <laughs> um, okay, so... How well did the book sell? It went pretty well. Uh, there were 7,000 sold in Australia right. and 10 overseas. Okay. So it went to the States and Britain. Okay. Is it still available? It's, av- it's not in print at the moment, but it is available through Amazon. They have some. Okay. Uh, and my intention is to republish it. Okay. okay. I made a television program. This is recent, is it? Uh, program. Yes. Oh, okay. That's probably why. Yeah. Made a, a, well, yes. It's not. It's not out there yet. Yeah. But we we've made a twelve part television series. Okay. Where's that going to be appearing? Well, I, I'll tell you as soon as I know. Let me know. I'll put it on the site. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Great. It's, well, so, do you think it'll go commercial to the commercial stations, or no. normally end up buried deep in one of the cable networks? No. Uh, oh no. It doesn't look like that at the moment. But well, I'll let you know when okay. I know. Yeah. Okay. Oh, great. That's exciting. And what are you doing on that? Is it this style of cooking? The, the well, my style of cooking, you know, we're talking about macrobiotics, and macrobiotics definitely informs, I mean, that's the term, I love that term, it informs mm. everything that I do, mm. really. But I, my style of cooking has altered quite significantly since I wrote that book. Mm. So I'm also writing another book, and that will be, it'll, it'll be updated you know, to what I'm actually up to now, right. which has more to do. They are, I was talking about traditional diets, and I'm really interested in Western Price's view of you know about Western Price. Yeah, I, I, I don't know a lot about Western Price, but again, my friends Julian Pat are big into Western Price. All oh, right, Western Price was a he was a a, a a dentist who was working in the 20s and 30s who looked at uh, 14 pockets of indigenous people who were left eating their traditional diets. And he he looked at what was common. And, well, he looked at he was obviously interested in their teeth, um, but he was he 
also documented and was interested in what it was that they ate and how they prepared it. And, and he found uh, that although people ate really diverse ranges of food, they pretty much did the same things with food. They all ate fermented food. They all ate cooked and raw food. They all ate animal food. You couldn't find a vegetarian society. So having been... Iku was uh, a... Originally, we had meat and fish. Or fish, actually, not meat. And eggs. And our customers made us vegan. So for nine years, I was a vegan. Because I had a vegan business, I thought, well, if the business is vegan, I better be vegan too. And I am going to write a book one day and I'm going to call it I Was the Vegan Who Ate Salami. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm foodie first. You know, yeah. I was, didn't really... I didn't have a sort of strong calling to be vegan myself. That you were thrust into it by your customers. Yeah, and, I, and it was also part of how, why I sold the business because it wasn't really in line with who I, I was yeah. being then. Yeah. You know? Tell us about Iku. Iku, my first baby. My first, second and third baby, actually. Yeah, three stores... Three restaurants, yeah. Balmain. Yeah, um, I walked past it this morning in Balmain. Yes. I've been to the one no. in Glebe also. Yeah, Glebe was, the, Glebe was the first one. Right. Uh, that was that was where Willem and I started the business, and we ran that for six years. Um, and then Willem died in 91, and Ken bought his share of the business a month before he died, and it was Ken that I sold the business right. to after I'd been there for 13 years. Right. And where was it to... So um, the first one was in Glebe, the second one was in Neutral Bay, okay. and the third Dude, one in Waverley. In Waverley, okay. Mm. So and there are now ten of them. Oh, is it? Yeah. Ah, oh, yeah. I know there's that many. Okay. Yeah. They, and, and they, it's been franchised since I sold it. Ken grew the business. That he had three of his own shops, and then he franchised it. And there's one centralised kitchen in Marrickville. Okay. Yeah, we were really surprised when we first we opened the business in '85. Oh, I didn't realise it was that old. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's in its 23rd year. Right. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it is. It's it amazing. Is. Yeah. And, that. And, and amazing. frankly, mid-80s, to start something like that, I'm a little bit surprised that it was accepted so readily. We were too. Yeah. Uh, and I it, think mid-90s, sure, but mid-80s. I, I had a, a macrobiotic restaurant before it called, um, it was originally called the macrobiotic restaurant. I, uh, <laughs> I didn't name that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I called it Manor. Okay. Uh, with the byline, Eat Food from Heaven, which I started in 83, 84, 84. Yes, more tea, thank you. So we've had a bit of background noise with some trucks that are doing some construction work around, so things might get a little bit noisy. So, Holly, you're talking about how people need to look into themselves when they eat some food and try and see how their body's dealing with it. Yeah, use their innate knowing or intuition. Popular idea, isn't it? We use our intuition. Mm, I'm big on the old intuition, too. Yeah, I am too. I, I think we, I think we know. Well, I think we can fool ourselves. Like, you know, you can fall into the trap of saying, "Because I feel like eating chocolate, I should eat chocolate." But uh, another layer down, there might be something else that you actually are in need of. It may not be food. You know, it, it could be that you need a walk, or you need a hug, oh. or you need to be, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Like, well, it is because, well, because the thing that you get is endorphins from yeah, chocolate, so right. exercise will give you that, and so will contact with another human being, yeah. <laughs> provided it's the appropriate, contact. the appropriate human being. <laughs> yes, yeah. and I'm not averse to eating chocolate either, but you know, it's just an example. You know, I think I think there's a 
there's a danger of as humans we like we like a prescription mm. you know we like we like to know what are the rules and how do I do this and and I think particularly I've noticed because macroiotics is my sort of it, through that experience I noticed that people get into it they get really zealous they get really like sort of born again about it and uh, and then eventually over time when they have some more experience of what they're actually creating by the way that they're eating and in my view eating a, um, an incredibly limited range of foods these is, are the people is who as sell. unhealthy as eating a really wide range of you know bad foods you can you can do equal damage to yourself thinking that you're doing the right thing but because you're, you're following these rules yeah because it's too rigid I mm. think and I, I prefer something that's more flexible and that um, is all-encompassing I think there is room for for everything it's just not always appropriate but have you noticed that in order to do that they have to have this awareness of themselves yeah I think I think you get the awareness by being really you, you have to go through a period where you really like rigid and I was holier than thou saved if you are and damned if you're not mm. impossible to go out with impossible to have to dinner you know Mm. Can I? And there's a lot of that about. Are you mm. not so, like, in, uh, around food right now? There is a lot of that about where people Actually, and people have true sensitivities. Yeah. But uh, as a restaurateur, I got very frustrated with people who came wanting me to wanting me to bend to fit their need rather than them being responsible for themselves, which I think is a lot... I think people like want... choose what suits you off this menu or go to another restaurant. Well, you know, I did have a business that really did cater for those people and I wanted to cater for them and I still do. Like, I, ca I do catering mm. and I have a lot of clients who want have special needs and I'm happy to cater for that. But I... I it's a, the irksome thing is when there's a menu there and people can't find something that works... Then, if you can't go out and eat what's on the menu, in my view, you should be cooking for yourself. You know, like yeah. take care of yourself to the point that and you learn the skills to be able yeah. to do it right. Yeah, I think. I mean, uh, maybe that's either that or your phone's holly up and ask who to cater specifically for those. Oh, I'll come to your house and cook for you. That's yeah. you know, one of the things I do. People have got serious illness, I go to people's homes and either work with them or work with the people that are feeding them and right. teach them how okay. to cook. That's a really nice thing. What, what, what do you think the state of um, this? Well, the Australian society and what other societies you know well. Um, the state of knowing how to cook, the ability, the skill well, that used to be passed on from grandmother to granddaughter. Once upon a time, I think like lots of things, there's there's a big duality. There there is a, quite a body of people who know more and who want to know more and who are really hungry for the knowledge of how do we how do we cook and how do we prepare food and 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 a lot of the old ways and the old knowledge is is dying with the people who carried that out you know our grandparents are, are going with a lot of knowledge that that isn't getting passed on mm. and that i think is really sad do you ever found any of those old cookbooks my favourite are things like the uh, CWA cookbooks from the 20s and stuff like that. Uh, real old ones where you've got things like rabbit stew and mm. wallaby tail soups and yeah. calves foot jelly. 
you know, See, in, amazing in, in my zealous macro days, I would have just poo-pooed that and gone, oh, well, that's, you know. <laughs> and so I, I didn't have anything to do with those sort of things because I was the kind of holier-than-thou. But with my current view, yeah. I'm open to absolutely everything. I, I will currently, I will eat anything. I'm Well, the thing <laughs> I, I, I've grasped and with cook- my understanding of macro is what's wrong with calf's jelly? so long as it's used appropriately and in a particular environment with certain lifestyle and yada, yada, yada. Yeah, I think the other thing to say about that is is the quality of the ingredients that you use determines the, the, nutrient, you know, the value of the food you end Completely. up with. So I have been a long-time advocate for the use of organic ingredients and... Have you explored the Australian indigenous foods, the native foods much? Mm, a little think? bit. What do you think about that whole thing? Because that fits the whole macro thing. Again, we're living in this island continent. Absolutely. Why aren't we eating the wildlife? Uh, emus, bottle seed. I've used um, ingredients a little. I had a woman who worked for me at Eco years ago who went out with Vic Cherikov, who's uh, he's one of the sort of main... He's been a real at the forefront of, uh, of making bush foods com- commercialising. Okay, right. a couple of books. And, yeah. and uh, so I tried out a number of things. And I think the thing with Indigenous foods is they're probably best utilised by Indigenous people. Like if you get somebody to cook for you and have them the way, you know, in an authentic fashion, they're probably fantastic. Right. But if you don't really know what you're doing with them, they're okay. not, a lot of them not that easy to to use. There are some beautiful flavours, you know, like mm. lemon myrtle mm. as a leaf added to mm. a Wild dish. Wine. In fact, the, in my, um, in the back page, the back cover of Nourish has a watermelon jelly with lemon myrtle. Okay. Beautiful. That's very gorgeous, delicate flavour. And, and wattle seed, you can, you know, those are not that hard to incorporate. Okay. So, where to now? You've got a TV series coming out, and we don't have any time frame for that at the moment, do we? No, as soon as possible. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, there seems to be quite a um, another book on the way. Process. Where to now? Where's the next part of your life heading? Uh, oh, that's a really good question. I'd like to do more presenting, and writing, and teaching. The, I mean, the areas that I work in now, are, I consult the business on development of menus and recipes and that sort of thing. Right. And I work with individuals, uh, which I love, uh, people who've been diagnosed with serious illness. I work with them. Uh, One-on-one. Yeah, well, I I work usually with them and whoever it is that's advising them and then help them to... Like, quite often people are told, you can't eat this and you can't eat that and you should eat this and you should eat that, and they haven't got a clue what those things are or how to use them. And... Um, my gift is using those ingredients and making them something you'd want to eat. Yeah. Which um, I think I think that's the gift that I've got is that I can make whole food in a way that that's, that it becomes a desirable option. And my view is to have to entice people with great food. And the secondary of that is that it happens to be good for you. You know, it's not yeah. like I don't want to hit anyone over the head with you should be doing this, or you must do that, or yeah, you can't. It tastes great. It's easier to eat than food. Yeah, it? look, if, it's, if it looks beautiful and it tastes fabulous and it just happens to be great for you, well, you know, fabulous. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty good, isn't it? 
Do you have a website? I have a website address. Do you? <laughs> I do. And would you want to share it? Yeah, sure. What is it? Um, so people can get it. I will put a link on the site. It's www.foodbyhollydavis. Foodbyhollydavis.com. Okay. And it's D-A-V-I-S. D-A-V-I-S, Davis. Yes. And if people wanted to bounce you an email, they could find a link there on the site. Would that be the best way? Or Yeah, or, or holly at foodbyhollydavis.com. You get that, everybody? Holly at foodbyhollydavis.com. Yes, and it works. I've used it. That's how I found you. So uh, thank you very much, Holly. Thanks for coming on the show. I thoroughly enjoyed this. I feel I should get on bended knee and honour you in some (laughs) way. (laughs) I uh, feel stoked to have met you. It's wonderful. Thanks very much for coming on the show. And uh, I look forward to listening to this. Much enjoyed. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. There are eight million stories in the naked city. This has been one of them.